Welcome to the School of Travels podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the School of Travels podcast. I can't believe we've made it all the way to June 2020, and the majority of us still can't travel beyond our own borders. It's really unbelievable, but as we've seen in the news, it's still necessary for the safety of us all. So I hope you are all finding ways to enjoy yourself and stay healthy out there with lots of quality friends and family time. This is a big week for the School of Travels podcast because I got to interview a guy who is actually one of my big inspirations for becoming a digital nomad. Many people who eventually start to work online while traveling continuously around the world will first tell you that they read Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. But two years after this book came out and also inspired by it himself, Johnny started his blog, johnnyfd.com, and started documenting his journey as a digital nomad. Bored at my first corporate job one day back in 2011 and searching for more info beyond the four-hour work week, I found one of Johnny's income expense reports on his blog and started reading some of his posts. I was fascinated by how many income sources Johnny had in a month and thought that it was not only a smart way to make money, but it was also safer than only having one like I did at the time. I then found Johnny's podcast, Travel Like a Boss, where he interviews other digital nomads about their experiences earning income on the road and eventually started my own journey in 2017. To me, Johnny was much more relatable than Tim Ferriss. Johnny likes to try things that he hears about and then share his experiences on his blog. He now has over 14 different income streams and we talk about these different sources of income including investing in the stock market and starting your multiple income stream journey even if you're an introvert or think you lack the confidence to do so. I wouldn't be the digital nomad that I am today with the friends that I've made around the world without having Johnny to thank as a continuing source of inspiration. So without further ado, here is my interview with Johnny FD. Welcome to episode 39 of the School of Travels podcast. And today I am actually interviewing someone who was one of my big inspirations for starting my entire travel lifestyle. Johnny FD, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Becky. I had no idea. Yeah. So actually, when I was working at my office job in Japan, I was looking up things like location independence and digital nomad after reading Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek. And um, you were one of the first people that came up. And I, the first thing I ever read from you was one of your monthly income expense reports. Oh, cool. You know, it's funny is when I first started, I, I had read the four hour work week and I was trying to find other like, you know, blogs or websites or other people who have done it. And there was nothing. There was nothing on the internet. You know, there's no podcast. There's no YouTube videos about it. And I just thought, you know, well, this Tim guy did it. Let me give it a shot. <laughs> so I started traveling in 2008 trying to, you know, I didn't even know what a digital nomad was at the time, but I just started openly blogging about it and just talking about it. And 
Yeah, it's cool that you found it. I'm sure, you know, many other people have found it kind of in the same way. And I have to say it was very helpful because I'm sure so many digital nomads have read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week and it puts that spark in you to have this kind of lifestyle. But like you just said, there, then there's no roadmap after that because Tim Ferriss is just living a different kind of life these days. Yeah. And, you know, even in the book, he was already much more successful. He already had a, a business, you know, a company that he could take online. He had life experience. He had savings and money. And I would say, you know, 90% of the book applied to me and gave me 100% inspiration. But once I got there, I thought, okay, well, now what? And I was very happy to be able to document everything I did, you know, like literally from 2008 when I was trying to live off of $600 a month and I tried to figure out, like, how do I do this from scratch? So, you know, I always tell people, you know, don't look at my income reports from, you know, today, from, you know, March or April 2020. Look at it from March or April 2013 when I first started uh, working online and starting to build a business if you really want to know what it's like to get started. Let's get started at how this whole thing started for you. I know that you used to work in California and can you start us there? Like what was it like growing up and what it, did you travel when you were young with your family or where did this all start? So I'm actually originally from Cincinnati, Ohio and I left when, to Tokyo in, uh, when I was 22. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. I was like, wow, there's a lot more I've never heard on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah. So I, I grew up in San Francisco. I went to school in Orange County in, in LA, like Southern California. And, you know, I had a pretty good life. Um, you know, I had, you know, the cool car, the cool clothes, the cool nightclubs. And it wasn't until I went to Thailand that I realized, you know what, all this is just a, a facade, you know, and this is before Instagram, but there was MySpace and I was doing it to try to impress others or try to, you know, try to be cool, right? And I didn't realize how insecure I was or how unhappy I was with normal life. And I was trying to play the game, you know, thinking like this is the only, like this is the only game I knew, like of... You got to have to go to a good school, get a good job, get a, you know, get a cool car, you know, make money so you can go to clubs and impress people, you know, opening bottles of champagne. And when I first started traveling, when I first read Far Work Week and decided to take that trip to Thailand, I realized, oh, you know what? All that was, you know, it's just all these material things, like they really don't mean much. And I didn't really know who I was. You know, I was already 27. I had no idea who I was. And everything I had done prior to that was to try to impress others or try to be someone who I wasn't. What were you doing for work when you were in San Francisco living that kind of lifestyle? At the time, I was working in Orange County in, in uh, Southern California. And I worked for a big company called Honeywell. It's a, a big U.S. company. Uh, and the title, you know, sounded fancy. It was I was an account executive. But really, I was in a cubicle wearing a Kirkland signature dress shirt from Costco and I was, you know, just talking to companies about, like, you know, you need to, you know, how many more ID cards do you need for for your new employees? Like, how many new badge readers do you need? How many, you know, new security cameras do you need for your new expansion? It was not really that exciting of a life. Um, and I was very, very fortunate that right before I went to, to Thailand, a few months before, that division actually got sold uh, so I got laid off and I had 
you know, a few months stipend and a little bit of kind of buffer to figure out what I wanted to do. Was that your first job out of college? Yeah. I mean, prior to that, I had worked, you know, normal retail jobs, Banana Republic, Best Buy, good guys kind of thing. But that was my first real job. When you were working at Honeywell, you were saying you were living a lifestyle just to impress others. Was that what most people were doing around you as well? Do you think that's why you were doing it yeah. too? I mean, even today, when I go back to LA, sometimes, you know, my friends were like, oh yeah, you know, like, let's go to, you know, XYZ bar and I was like they were like let's go to Sutra and I'm like Sutra like it wasn't that the place we used to go to every Friday night and they're like yeah it's still great and I'm like man that was like 10 years ago like you're still going to the same bar every weekend and it was not a, like um you know it wasn't like a homey kind of like neighborhood bar where you would go and know everyone and you know it kind of like the cheers atmosphere it was a place that was hard to get into and people were like, you know, really fake and it was really expensive. It was just like the cool place. And I had never enjoyed it even back then. But now it's one of those places where I would definitely avoid going because before I had no other option. I was like, well, I either stay home and be a loser and be alone or I can try to go to this club, you know, and I can try to meet, you know, some cool peep guys and, or some hot girls and then I can be somebody. Ohio being so different. I've never had that California lifestyle, like knowing how much pressure there really is to be seen at clubs and, and live like that. I was very middle class growing up, partly due to our religion as well. Nobody was going to clubs at night. So I can't imagine how hard it must be to walk away in a sense from that and try to do something very different. Yeah, I actually think uh, it made it a little bit easier to walk away from that because I think if I had grown up in Ohio or you know the Midwest or somewhere and I wanted to leave and find something different, I would have dreamed about moving to California or to New York. And then that would have been like the, the big step, you know, cause it is a big step. It's a big new world, but coming from California and actually having lived in New York for a little bit off and on, uh, mainly during the college years, cause my, my friend had a place there. I had experienced like the two kind of big places, you know, all of California and then Manhattan. And I realized, well, what else is there? You know, I'm, you know, very few people from the big city are like, OK, now let me move to a smaller town or a smaller like second tier city. And because of that, it forced me to really leave the U.S. and, and explore Thailand and explore other places. I see. So did you travel much when you were growing up with your family? No. Um, I mean, ironically, my parents say I traveled a lot when I was young, but I don't remember any of it because it was all before I turned five. Uh, you know, technically, I've been to Japan when I was like four or five, but I don't remember it at all. So when people ask me, you know, have I been there before? I say no. Oh, yeah. I thought you'd never been. I never knew that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I actually remember my, so my first big trip was to New York. And, you know, I was in my early 20s. And even though now, the moving from one country to another, or even one part of the, one continent to another, isn't that big of a deal. I remember really being stressed and thinking it was a huge deal to go from California to New York. I mean, that's literally the furthest flight you can take, you know, and, and still be within the U.S., you know, coast to coast. And it's, it was such a different culture. And the only reason why I was comfortable to go is I had a friend that was going to NYU and he happened to have a spare bedroom that just wasn't being rented out at the time. So he said, you know, Johnny, like, just come hang out for three weeks and you know, and see New York. And it was scary, to be honest, just to even make that first trip. But I did it. 
And I know how big of a deal it must have felt like that first time, even though you were coming from a bigger city. You said in 2008, you went to Thailand for the first time. And did you go over with the intention to move there right away? No, it, it was a vac- literally a vacation. And it was going to be for two and a half or three weeks. Two of my cousins uh, were going with me. And it was going to be the one time I go to Thailand. And in my mind, this was a once in a lifetime you know, possibility to go there. So I made sure I lived it up. You know, we stayed at a really nice hotel that you know was only maybe seventy five dollars a night. So you know, by U.S. standards, it's pretty cheap, right? But over there, everybody staying there was on their honeymoon or you know celebrating something special. Uh, we spent money on different tours. We went you know bungee jumping. We did you know cooking classes. We did you know basically whatever excursions there were. And I really thought this was it. So I needed to do as much as possible. And I remember on my like second to last day, I had gone through the list of every tour there was. And I said, oh, what about this Discover Scuba Diving thing? Let's try this. And I remember paying, you know, $60 for them to take a photo of me underwater because I wanted to go home and, you know, brag to all my friends and show this to two to people at the at the bar, the nightclub, be like, oh yeah, you know, went to Thailand, went scuba diving. And it was funny that it was on the way back from that first trip, when I was talking to my dive instructor, it was a Swiss French guy named Rene Christophe. And he basically said something like, you know, why would you go back? You know, why don't you just stay? You know, he's like, it, it seems like you really enjoy diving and you're, you're pretty natural at it. You know, have you thought about just moving back and doing your dive master course? And at the time, I had never considered, you know, that being a, a career choice. I mean, I, I literally had never even really heard of scuba diving until two days prior to that, you know, besides seeing it on like National Geographic or something. And that was that was very fortunate that I had just read the four-hour work week on the plane right over. And I started thinking, yeah, what if? Wow. So you stayed? Kind of. I still had so many obligations back home. I had just signed another year lease. I had three cars at the time, you know, and I had all this just stuff. And so I knew I had to go back and I, and I, you know, but I had made a plan. I said, I'm going to go back. I'm going to give myself six months to, you know, get rid of everything, save up some money. And then I'm going to go back to, to Thailand. But and what really helped me actually was uh, in the four hour work week, there was, like a work like a worksheet or a thought experiment that was basically let's say you get rid of everything you make this big move and it all goes to to crap how long would it take to get your life back to exactly where it was before you left and i had written down you know the 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 the, the backup plan you know i would move back in with my parents or i move my sister or my cousin or something or a friend you know i would you know, um, get a job, re- you know, I have to buy another car, buy new clothes, you know, buy furniture. And I was like, you know, actually, this wouldn't take me that long at all. It would take me maybe four months <laughs> to get back to my feet and probably be in a very similar place than I, w- I was before. And that's when I realized, okay, let's let's give this a shot. So I went home and I started selling my things. I started making a plan. I started telling people. And that was actually the biggest mistake is just telling random people you know that really had no say in my life what my plan was because they all started either guilt tripping me or giving me you know fearful reasons why i shouldn't do it 
did that get into your head or did you just stick to like a certain date? You're like, nope, but I'm still leaving this day. Uh, it got in my head. I mean, it, it was scary. I mean, they would ask me questions that, you know, maybe they're, you know, realistic questions, but at the same time, maybe they're excuses on why they haven't done it or why they won't do something like that. There are also things that I probably don't need to think about right away. I mean, some of the questions were, you know, and if you stop working, um, you'll stop paying into your 401k or social security. What are you going to do when you're, when you retire one day and, and you have, you know, and you're not going to get any social security or any, you know, any retirement. And I wasn't thinking that far ahead. I mean, maybe I should have been right. But the fact is I was so unhappy with my normal life that it didn't matter. I didn't, I wasn't thinking 25 or 30 years ahead or 40 years ahead, you know, I was thinking if I don't make a change in my life now, in four years from now, I might become an alcoholic. I might, you know, I, I might be depressed. I might, you know, it, I, my life might be terrible anyway. So let me just give this a shot. So I actually moved the the date uh, up ahead. And I said, I'm going to give myself, I think it was three months. I, I cut it in half. I said, I, bu I bought a ticket and I said, this is it. I, I have to get out of here. And I'm not going to tell anyone else I'm leaving until like right right when I leave. Yeah, that's very powerful when you take an action like that, draw a line in the sand. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think now it's much easier because there's so, you know, so many people who have done it beforehand and there's so many tools where if, if somebody, you know, wanted to do it very rationally, they would spend a year ahead of time, you know, start minimalizing things, stop buying things, you know, have a good safety buffer of a years of savings, start a remote job or business on the side and start having income now and then make the move. For me, you know, not only did I not have the the foresight to do that, uh, but also I don't know if I would have. I, I don't know if that was in my personality to, to save and plan ahead that much. You know, I just had to just jump in. Do you recommend to people to have a window of time where they prepare to go? Or would you say maybe it's more effective if you just take off and go and like make it up as you go along. I mean, obviously it, it's a much better, it's a more prudent idea to have savings and have a job and have some kind of work beforehand. But at the same time, I know a lot of people won't do that. So my advice is, is normally, you know, don't put yourself in debt. You know, don't like, don't put yourself in such a bad position where it's going to like, you know, ruin your life or ruin your someone's life. But even if like, even thinking back in my situation, you know, I didn't have anything going for me, but just by selling my car, selling my stuff, and just you know, kind of freeing up some cash, I had maybe eight thousand dollars, and that's enough to last you know at least ten, you know ten months uh, if you live cheaply in Thailand, and that's you know more than enough time to get there, settle in, take a little break, and then you know figure something out, you know figure out a way to make some money, uh, and if not. You know, the like, worst comes to worst. I go back and I spend four months living at home, getting another job, buying another car, and just getting back to normal life, knowing that, hey, I gave it a shot and saw some great things, and maybe it wasn't for me. My plan was to move to Koh Tao, uh, this little island in Thailand, to go scuba diving. And what I didn't realize is that is the start of monsoon season. And that year was going to be the worst monsoon they would have in a long time. So even on the boat ride, the ferry ride over to the island, I was so sick. 
and, and it wasn't just me. It was literally hundred, like a hundred people on the boat were throwing up, and it was the worst experience ever. And I remember getting off the boat. I had way too much luggage with me. You know, I literally carried like the maximum limit of what the airline would let me. So I had two giant suitcases I could hardly even carry, and I'm a pretty big guy. And I remember trying to like roll it down the stock and. And I just couldn't even get to the taxi. I had to just stop at the first restaurant, sit there, have like a, a you know a thing of tea and maybe like some some white bread or something. And I remembered seeing a hotel or a room, like you know within walking distance. And I, and I just said, "There's no way I can explore this island or f- try to find a, a place tonight. Like I'm just gonna stay here." So I remember checking in taking a shower, falling asleep. <laughs> and then for 24 hours, I didn't see anything. I just, I was just in the room recovering. Wow. So that was Johnny in Thailand, his first couple of days. Yeah. And even then, like, even though it was that bad and it, when I woke up, it wasn't any better because the streets were flooded. All the restaurants were closed. Uh, I mean, when I say flooded, I mean, you would walk to your, probably your knees in water to get anywhere. And, Oh my gosh. It was really bad. And it was so bad that after two weeks, uh, me and these two other travelers I had met, these two girls from New Zealand, said, Hey, you know, let's go to Chiang Mai in the north. It's, you know, it's not raining there. And I said, Okay. Like, I don't know where Chiang Mai is, but I, like, I'll go with you. And I remember taking a train up there. And even then, like, even though I probably had the worst possible timing and the worst possible, you know, first two weeks of moving to Thailand, I was so happy that I, I loved it. Every day I woke up happy. Wow. And so that's when everything started in Chiang Mai. Well, I, I wish. I, I, I didn't go back for another, you know, probably seven years and never. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That was just your first taste of it. You felt like some happiness that I know came back later on, well, which we'll get to. <laughs> also, in 2008, that same time, to kind of make matters even worse, is so we get to Chiang Mai, and I think the very first or second day, there's a military coup. Oh, my gosh. And the two girls I was traveling with, and pretty much everyone in the whole, you know, in the whole country was freaking out, and they're glued to the news 24-7. And I remember them, you know, refreshing, like, the news sites and just trying to figure out what was going on. And I was sitting there like, oh, well, should we go, you know, explore the city? Should we go walk around? And they were like, no, like, you know, there's a coup. There's a, you know, and there's, you know, there's no flights going out. Like, what are we going to do? The airport shut down. And I remember thinking, like, what are you guys in such a, like, rush to go back to, you know? Like, their bosses would understand if the airport's shut and they can't leave, like they watch the news or they can, you know, you can send a link to it. And just now you have a bonus vacation. You can stay for another two weeks. Let's go enjoy ourselves. Cause everything was still open in Chiang Mai. And they just were like, no, 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 just give me one more hour. Give me one more hour. And I remember like those four days, we, we didn't see anything in Chiang Mai. We literally were just in the, the guest house, you know, glued to the news. And I just remember thinking like, God, like I, and I, at the time, I was too scared to, to travel alone. It was my first trip uh, by myself. And I should have just said, okay, you know what? If you guys want to waste your time, you know, refreshing the news, go ahead. But I'm, I'm going to go do my own thing. But aside from going maybe for a few walks or some food, I, I never saw any of the city. 
Oh, wow. It reminds me of my first time in Chiang Mai. I went in 2005 just for three days. And I just remember being in the back of a tuk-tuk going from temple to temple. I don't remember which ones I saw. And that was it. And I didn't go back again until 2018. Yeah. It's so, so. such a shame, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was. I, I just remember meeting a few other foreigners even in 2005. And it seemed like a friendly place with maybe a few expats. I was like, oh, people live here. But I never would have thought this is actually one of the best, if not the best place in the world to live when you're first starting as a digital nomad. Yeah. And, you know, I've been to so many countries and so many digital nomad hotspots. And Chiang Mai is still by far the best place for someone who's starting out. I would agree. Now, having also been to several places, that's what I actually want to get to um, as well for people, because as we're talking, we're still going through this coronavirus pandemic. A lot of people have lost their jobs. And I know that you came over, like you said, with without a job. And we haven't talked about this more in detail, but you did get your dive master license and become a scuba diving instructor for a while. But yeah, I think where you really started to take off and see the opportunity that living this lifestyle could give you was in Chiang Mai. So could you talk about once you got to Chiang Mai and decided to live there and what happened from there? Yeah, so that was about 2013. So, so I had worked as a, a dive master for about four years and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I knew it wasn't something I could do for the rest of my life. You know, and, and it wasn't enough money to save or, you know, travel, you know, uh, or really do much else. So in 2013, I was in Chiang Mai and I had... I think I had literally Googled the phrase how to make money online. <laughs> I'm sure many people are doing that now. Yeah. I'm really positive. And the problem was back then there was so little information. Now there's probably too much information. But back then there was nothing. And I remember going through lists and thinking like, oh, I, you know, none of this is possible. And the first thing I saw that, you know, I thought, okay, maybe I can do this was – to turn a blog into a book or an ebook. And I had my blog, uh, it wasn't johnnyft.com at the time, it was myfightcamp.com because I was actually, aside from uh, scuba diving, I was also training as a Muay Thai fighter. So I was blogging about that and the you know, cheap cost of living in Thailand. And I spent two months uh, sitting down there writing out an entire book of how to move to Thailand you know, cheaply, uh, how to live for $600 a month, how to get a job as a you know a scuba diving guide? How to get free accommodation uh, as a Muay Thai fighter? Uh, as you know, uh, and just kind of that first big chapter in my life. And I published that book on Amazon uh, on Kindle. It's called Twelve Weeks in Thailand: The Good Life on the Cheap. It's still out there, and actually, people still buy it and review it all the time now because there's a lot of people who are kind of just starting out and. It was like my first introduction, and I thought, wow, you know, if I can make, you know, I remember the very first month, I made $600, and it was kind of a fluke, um, because, you know, I had people following my blog for now for four years, I never sold them anything, I never had any advertising on there, and I think a lot of them just wanted to, to support me, but then, even after that, I started making $200 a month from it, pretty consistently for, for many years, and I thought, wow, this is really, really, like, good, if I could do this... Now I just need to write three more books so I can live here. Uh, or I need to just figure out how to sell more books. And that's actually when I started finding other digital nomads. And at the time, there, w there wasn't that term. So you couldn't search digital nomad meetup. 
you literally have to find people with similar interests that were for our work week. Tim Ferriss, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, entrepreneurship. And luckily, I had you know, right, uh, run across a few different people in Chiang Mai. One who ended up being my mentor, this guy named Anton Crayley, this guy new from New York, that was doing something called dropshipping. And that became my second business, but also the first business that made enough to really replace my U.S. income and, and really allowed me to start you know, making real money and start saving as well. So that was your second passive stream yeah. of income. And I know from there, there's opportunities. Once you have a product, you've partnered with someone too, you can start getting affiliate income coming through your blog and you start to build this network of different streams of income, I would say. Yeah, definitely. But every single time, it was kind of like um, a crossroads. I remember when I first started making money with dropshipping, I started telling you know all my friends about it, saying like, oh, this is amazing. Like I'm making... You know, it wasn't a, a ton of money, but being in Thailand and going from you know just getting by for to making you know two or three thousand dollars a month in profit to me was like incredible. I was like, oh my god, I can't believe this works. So I started telling all my friends, and I started blogging about it. And then I I remember think you know coming out across coming across that crossroads, saying, should I be telling everyone about this? It's going to create a lot more competition for myself. Uh, you know, if it's it's just going to become harder. And I decided, I was like, you know what? Like, this is something I wish somebody else would have told me uh, You know, when I was looking around and when I was Googling, like, how to make money online. So I decided to go full, you know, full force with it. And I said, okay, like, I'm just going to tell the world. And by doing that, I actually met a bunch of other dropshippers. And they taught me their strategies on marketing and in growing their store. So instead of making two or three thousand a month from my store, I started making you know five or six thousand. So it started helping. And then people started asking me, well, like you know, Johnny, what um, what you know, what host do you use? Do you use you know WordPress or do you Shopify or, or BigCommerce? So I say, oh, I use Shopify. Here's my link. Uh, I get a affiliate commission if you sign up through my link. And then they'll say, oh, how did you learn how to? Um, to do all this and how'd you learn the marketing how'd you, how'd you find a niche I was like oh I took this kind of Antod's course here's my link and they're like oh okay well what you know email autoresponder do you use for your customers and I'm like oh I use Aweber here's my link and all of a sudden I just started making as much money from affiliate income every month than I was actually running my store so not only was I making $200 a month from my book I was now making $5,000 a month from my dropshipping store and another $5,000 a month from my affiliate income. I don't think people understand how this does start to multiply itself. Like you said, once you are going out there, maybe not the first person, but you're, you're, you know, one of the early adopters of, let's say like this type of dropshipping with, with Anton's course and you're telling people about it. Maybe you're one of the first that's going to document everything and put it out there. That reliable source of advice for people is so valuable and it's a really good strategy. Yeah. I, I like it's 100%, you know, and it's like, I, I really believe in the abundance mentality now where I think in a past life, you know, growing up in California, it was a scarcity one where, you know, if you got into the club, I maybe I couldn't get in. Or if you got the girl, I would I couldn't get it. Or if you, you know, were the cool guy, then I would be the loser. And now I realize, like, everybody can be a winner. Like, everybody can succeed in life, and there's room for everything. And, sh- and sure, there's going to be some people who are going to, you know, are going to just try to copy you or try to steal from you or put you down. 
but the majority of people you'll meet and the majority of people that you'll help when you when you put things out there it's going to offset it and you're going to come out on top I have a question for those introverts of us out there, because I know the way you started to build your streams of income, you were really putting your face on your book, you're putting your face on your website, you were really using yourself as a brand. Do you have any advice for people that are more introverted that may not feel comfortable putting themselves and their face out there everywhere at the very beginning? Yeah, and, and the easiest way is instead of you know having the website be johnnyfd.com, it can be um, you know, online business reviewed.com, you know, where instead of, you know, you can still, you know, sign your name, Becky or Johnny, but you you never have to use your photo, you know, maybe just like in your about me page or something, but like, it doesn't have to be about you. It can be about the brand. So for you, it could be the school of travels. It doesn't need to be, you know, the, the Becky show. It could be, um, like really highlighting, either, you know, the destinations or products or even the people you, you interview. I mean, I was just watching this this YouTube channel that was huge. Um, and I can't remember the name of it now, but it was something like, you know, let's say it's like Paul TV or something. Uh, and it's funny because you actually never see Paul. It's just him interviewing people and a lot of pretty big name people now. Um, you know, he, they had on like some some big investors, some you know, uh, musicians and it, the camera is set up where the guy, Paul is behind the camera. So you've never seen us. You never see his face. You only see the guest's face. And I was really impressed. I was really actually kind of shocked where, you know, this, uh, this big brand, which happens to be called Paul TV, which probably shouldn't be, it should probably be called, you know, like, you know, interviews with, with get, you know, movie stars or something that they have this whole big brand with millions of subscribers that is technically, you know, him interviewing these celebrities, but he doesn't show his face at all. So you you can, you know, be sitting next to him on an airplane and you have no idea who this person is, you know, even though he can easily have shown his face and become famous, you know, become, you know, the guy who's, you know, who's interviewing, um, you know, these celebrities, but he just has chosen not to. That's really interesting. I like that he's still doing it himself because I could also think of maybe hiring extroverted people to do some of this work for you or to sell products of yours on YouTube. But, you know, that may cost a lot of money if you're just starting out, but he's doing it. He's just not, like you said, in front of the camera. So, yeah, that's good advice. You were saying, for example, that like drop shipping, you didn't know if putting it out there and documenting it and spreading it would change, would flood the industry. What is the state of drop shipping now? I've never gotten into it. Would you still recommend it to people? I know also that Amazon last week just changed a bunch of rules again with their affiliate income and things like that. And they're always changing. What is your take on dropshipping now? Yeah. So surprisingly, even during this, uh, this recession and this quarantine, like dropshipping is actually doing very well. And, and the thing is when we, when people say dropshipping, the, the unfortunate part of it is most people assume you're dropshipping cheap items from China, from AliExpress, because that has been the most popular way to do it the last couple of years. And for a while, people were making a lot of money doing that. And, and that's why it became so popular. It was easy. It didn't cost any money to start. You never had to get approved by a supplier. Like you could literally just go on AliExpress, look for some cheap piece of crap, and then put it on your site and sell it for 10 times more. That is, you know, pr- 
pretty much dead, you know. And I knew from day one, like this is a fad. This is not going to last very long. But dropshipping as a, as a fulfillment model of saying I'm going to sell a real product that people actually want, that's you know probably going to be warehoused already in the U.S. or made in the U.S. Uh, or at least imported and sitting in a warehouse in the U.S. and you, and you're selling you know high quality products with real brands, like that's always going to continue as long as people buy things online. And Amazon has taken a big share away from it, but um, the way that I learned how to pick products through Anton is to s- like sell products that don't sell very well on Amazon. So, for example, Amazon's really good at smaller items that can ship really quickly, but they're really bad at kind of big, bulky items. Like, for example, you probably want to buy um, like bunk beds or something on on Amazon. You would probably buy it to a furniture store or somewhere else just because like Amazon's probably not going to ship that two-day free shipping with with Prime they probably don't have a very good selection of it you know it's probably it's not kind of what they're built for so it's funny that um, with all the stores that I help run and then all my friends who have dropshipping stores literally everybody aside from people who just happen to run out of out of stock they're all crushing it during this time and Shopify CTO just announced on and it wasn't even an announcement he literally put a job posting on Twitter saying hey guys you know we need to hire you know 20 more developers because we're getting black level you know black friday levels of traffic every day and it's it's crazy like you would think that during this recession people would stop spending money they would save money and they would just stay at home and you know and plan for the future but instead people are shopping online <laughs> and they're just buying stuff I have heard that. I've got some friends doing some Amazon model businesses and they're like, business is doubled <laughs> or or more than that in a time when you might lose your job from this pandemic or from anything in the future. Who knows what's going to happen? It's like thinking of different models, different things you can get into, make yourself secure for the future is really so important right now. I have some Shopify stock. They're doing great. <laughs> yeah, they're doing like really, really fantastic. And it's funny that actually a few years ago, People were calling Shopify a scam or dropshipping a scam, and they're and it got like it actually somehow got to this uh, short seller that went on um, like MSNBC or something and was saying, yeah, like you know, there's only you know a handful of uh, a big you know name brand stores like Nike and Puma or you know um, you know things that you know like really people have heard of that are using Shopify. Like the other 99% of of websites are like these no-name people and sitting around in Thailand or in in, um, in Vietnam, you're creating these stores. So their price, their their stock price had actually dropped from I think a hundred dollars a share, like you know, wait, like one hundred fifty dollars a share down to like eighty or ninety dollars a share, and it was just dropping really fast. And I remember seeing that news article, thinking like, this guy has no idea what he's talking about, like. You know, you don't need to be Nike to sell products online. Like, you know, there's plenty of small, legitimate companies, and I know all of them. And that's actually when I started buying Shopify stock at, I think I bought it at like $93. And it just shot up. Like, what, what is it at now? It's at 600 about 650 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's come up a lot even in the last year. I think it's it went from like 450 to 650 It's It's incredible. Yeah, and it's it's so funny that like people just don't understand that the the future, you know, I mean the not even the future, the present reality is most things you buy online are not 
from some big corporation sitting in some Manhattan office. It's from a small team of people that may be sitting in Chiang Mai. Yeah, working hard for sure. Because I know we're, we've we've said you know passive income, but the truth is that all of this is not passive at the beginning, and even a lot of it as you're going through, you do have to put the work into it. But it it grows in a way that clocking in every day and working on an hourly schedule is not. That's what I think people need to keep in mind as well. Yeah, exactly. And also, it's it's a something that's an asset. So not only you know do you make the, the monthly profit, whether it's a thousand a month or five thousand dollars a month, but after you know you've pro- proven a track record of running it for one or two years, it's an asset you can sell, and that's what I ended up doing with three of my stores. Is I built them up to about three thousand dollars a month of profit, and then I honestly kind of just got lazy. You know, I got you know I was really excited in the beginning to grow them, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm you know this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I'm so excited. I'm so happy I can work online, and then I started making enough money from other sources and just saving and you know keeping my costs down, and I was like. Uh, I don't really feel like uploading new products or uh, I don't really feel like making this website mobile responsive. And that's when I would just sell them, you know, and I sold them for $60,000, you know, in a, just basically like a fail swoop. Like here's, you know, here's my website, here's my logins to my Shopify and everything, you know, here's the domain transfer and they'd send me a check for 60 grand. And I was like, this is amazing. This is more than I ever made in a year. And this is you know, from something that I had already lived off of and made, you know, two, three thousand dollars a month uh, for, you know, the last two, three years. And then now you just get this bonus. Yeah, I think so many people are not aware of the fact that there are marketplaces now for buying and selling websites, just like the one you've described, that are already making you money every month. So you can put your money into something, into a website, and start getting that income right away, and then work on the website and fix it up and sell it again. It's just like flipping a house. Yeah, exactly. So I know that you have done speeches recently. I know the last speech I saw, you were making at least 17 different sources of passive income. Is that right? How many is it now? No, I think it was like 14 or something, but yeah, cl- close. <laughs> okay. So are there any other streams of income that you haven't mentioned that you think might be useful for people to hear about? Yeah. I mean, actually, the only the only two reasons why I created so many streams was one is I was just really excited to try new things. You know, I have the Travel Like a Boss podcast, so I've been interviewing you know people in, in you know about different ways to make money online. And when I would hear about something, I would think, "Oh, that sounds cool. Let me try that." Uh, or, and honestly, I was also just always afraid that one stream would just dry up or just turn off overnight. You know, Amazon would, for some reason, you know, decide like, oh, "Okay, like you know, this guy is out of the U.S., so I'm going to shut down his account." Or someone's going to, you know, something's going to happen where something's going to get shut down. And nothing ever actually did, ironically, but it kind of encouraged me or forced me to create all these different streams. So I remember probably my third or fourth um, thing that I did was uh, I had a girlfriend at the time that was an English teacher in Chiang Mai, and she wanted to you know start something online, but she had zero tech skills. I mean, like barely was able to, you know, uh, edit her, her Facebook page. And I said to her, I said, you know, we could do, and she really wanted to do a dropshipping store because that's what I was doing. And I said, you know, we could do one, but I, you know, I, I heard about this new platform called Udemy. It's a place to make online courses. And it seems like 
you know, it's more straightforward. And, you know, she was really um, kind of good kind of in front of a camera anyways, just like very bubbly kind of uh, outgoing person. And I said, you know what, why don't we try this? Let's, let's try making a course and you can learn kind of the, some of the basics of online business and, you know, um, how to like edit things and upload things and, you know, just you know, make you know, basic websites. And I said, if you, you know, if we can do this first, then let's, uh, and we can make this work, then let's start a store together. So that's what we did. So we made a Udemy course and it was called small talk, uh, just how to talk to anyone. And it was really basic. It was stuff that she had learned in psychology class and from, from books that she was really into. And that course, like even today, still makes us money, which is crazy. It's been like seven years. And Udemy automatically deposits half of the profits in her account and half in mine. So even though I haven't spoken to her in a few years, we were still getting paid on it. And it was the perfect kind of first introduction for her, but it was also a new stream of income for me. That's incredible. And also, like you said, they'll split the profits for you. And I think you get to choose what percentage each person gets as well, which is great for partnering with people. And I'm sure you learned so much from making that first one that you'd almost want to make another one or make as many as you felt like you could. Yeah. So we ended up making uh, another one together that uh, did okay, not not as good as the first one. Uh, And then I made two on my own. But what's funny is she was really good friends with another girl in Chiang Mai who was a fashion blogger and charity. Um, she, she would like shopping at char- like thrift stores and, and charity, charity shops. And she had uh, shown her how to create these Udemy courses. And um, th- th- this girl, Louise, Louise Croft, I met up with her in Las Palmas in uh, Grand Canary, the Canary Islands last year and had her on my podcast and I was like, oh, how's, you know, how's your Udemy, you know, um, stories doing? Are you, like, are you, are you doing anything else now? And she's like, no, I'm still doing Udemy full, full time. Thanks to you and Larissa, you know, for teaching me how to do it, you know, back in the day. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, like, like how, like, how are you doing with it? And she's making more than $10,000 a month in profit from it, which is insane because I never made more than a thousand from it. And it just really, it blew my mind and I was very you know happy for her, but also I was kicking myself in the butt thinking, you know, this is why you should just find something that works and stick to it instead of spreading yourself too thin. Because that's exactly what I ended up doing is I spread myself way too thin, you know, when I could have literally chosen any one of the, the 14 things that I had ended up doing and I would have made way more money from just that one thing. I have to confess, I heard that episode on your podcast, and I remember that she also did something really smart as well, which is she found someone who was really good at something, but you know would never know how to make a course. I think it was her father who was really good at speaking about business, if I remember, and she's able to split profits with him and help her own family member and help herself, and it's a good strategy. Look for people with these amazing skills that just don't have the time or the skills to make their own course, and you can help them, and both of you can profit from it. Yeah, and that's another good example of what to do if you're an introvert and you're like, I can never see myself in front of a camera. Well, you don't have to be. You can be behind the camera. You know, you can find someone who's, let's say, a yoga teacher who knows nothing about tech, nothing about making courses, and you can say, how about we do this and we'll split it 50-50. You be the face. You teach the course. You know, I'll film it. I'll edit it. I'll upload it. And I'll do the back end. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, really valuable stuff. So Udemy definitely, and I know there's a lot of other platforms now besides Udemy. And in some cases, you can put the exact same course on several of these different teaching websites and get profit from all of them. Yeah, exactly. And some of them will even do a um, like a one-time payment of, let's say, $300 or something to encourage you to, to go and upload it there. There's so much opportunity out there. And I think this coronavirus time, like I've heard both sides. Some people have told me, I don't want to feel the pressure to have to accomplish and be productive right now. I'm. It's okay for me to just relax. And I agree with them to an extent. But I also think, especially if you've lost your job or you're feeling the scarcity mindset right now, it's a really good time to look into yourself and figure out your next strategy to try to set yourself up for the future. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, the the thing is, I mean, people can really choose to do whatever they want. But at the same time, I don't want to hear some complain six months from now, you know, that they gained 20 pounds, you know, and are super out of shape and super and, you know, they're broke now. And all, and all they did was sit on the couch, you know, eat ice cream and order Domino's and watch Tiger King and, you know, buy crap online instead of you know, taking that same amount of time and saying, you know what, you know, maybe I'm going to learn how to cook, you know, maybe I'll, uh, I'll eat healthy, I'll exercise at home, you know, I'll like, you know, do some yoga, I'll meditate, and maybe I'll learn how to build an online business. So, you know, instead of me buying stuff, I'm selling it. Yeah, I think it's important. Maybe you could start with one of those things you've just said, like, I'll start exercising. And then you can add things later as you go, because to go from a Tiger King lifestyle to all of that could be overwhelming. But we can all start from where we can start and then go forward and build all these streams of income. It's really exciting. Yeah. And you know, the, the thing is, like, I I really believe that all everything's linked. Uh, where, you know, if you're, if you're living the, the Tiger King and, you know, an ice cream lifestyle, yeah, I understand why you're tired all the time because, you know, you're just like, it, that's life is just, it's hard when you're doing that. Your body's like not wanting to respond. But, you know, yeah, let's say all you did was like, okay, you know, tomorrow I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes and the next day I'm going to do yoga for 20 minutes. And then once you start kind of developing those habits and you start doing these positive things for your body and your mind, it snowballs and it becomes easier and easier. You start having more energy to do it. You start, you know, being surrounded by like-minded people who instead of all of them saying, you know, like, Oh, listen to my pity story and how much I'm a victim of, you know, the stress and everything that's going on and how Donald Trump's you know ruining my life, you know, and how the coronavirus lockdown has, you know, uh, you know, made me cancel my travel plans. You know, instead of being around people who are complaining about things, you start surrounding yourself by people saying, Oh, did you, you know, did you see this new uh, ad platform or new way to get traffic or a new way to do this? You know, and they start talking about their successes and, you know, it, that ends up further motivating you to, you know, to take the next step and, and just do better and better. I think you've just highlighted what you can really learn when you change your environment. It doesn't maybe have to be constantly traveling around the world, but moving into these different spaces and hanging out with like-minded people in those spaces is really one thing we love about this lifestyle. Yeah. And I think that's what I, what I love about Chiang Mai so much is you can show up there, join a co-working space, you know, start going to some meetups. And you have a new circle of friends who have all taken at least that first step of travel. You know, they all either want to start an online business or already have one. And from there, you can kind of just keep leveling up. You know, either you'll learn and grow along with them. Like, you know, all my, like, like all the very successful people I know with six-figure online businesses or 
you know, people who have made a lot of money doing this. I met them back in 2013 when we were all just starting out and when we were all broke. And I, I literally remember, you know, us like having, you know, a $2 breakfast thinking like, yeah, how are we going to make a thousand dollars so we can survive? You know, and now a lot of them are doing way better than I am. I mean, we lit- we have uh, these meetups called Six Figure Sushi where the only requirement is you have to make, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year. And all of them uh, like, we were reminiscing, saying like, yeah, do you remember like when we first actually met and we were all broke? And literally the only difference is they stuck to it and it's it's strange. So, I mean, I, I think there's ways to kind of fast forward that a bit, you know, so, you know, but a big part of it is really just like meeting other people who are just getting started and saying, hey, let's do this together. Yeah, accountability, making a mastermind group. These things are very so powerful. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, I'm also a big fan of meeting people in person, uh, especially in like meetups or events, conferences. And a big, big hack. And the reason why I like going to places like Nomad Cruise or these paid conferences is the people who you meet at a paid conference, whether it's a $100 event or a $1,000 event, they are on another level. They're, they're always more successful. They're always more optimistic and f- friendly and kind of open and, you know, less like pessimistic. And I don't know what it is. Like, I, I think it's the fact that someone, I mean, I guess it's two things, right? If someone can afford to go to one of these events, they probably have some money or they probably have a business. So they're like, okay, yeah, it's not a big deal if I spend $500 to go to this event. But the second is they're willing to invest in themselves. And they see the value of networking and learning and meeting other people. And those are the type of people I want to be around. I completely agree. I went finally on my first Nomad Cruise back in November. And it was just incredible, the connections you make and what, what it, like how you feel yourself at the end of it. And it just years down the road, it reaps benefits. So for anybody listening, like the conference, you know, circuit, any anything you're interested in, look up a conference about it and you'll be amazed at the people you'll meet. Can we talk for a few minutes about investing? Because I've also listened to Invest Like a Boss, your other podcast, and I'm a finance major from way back when. And I unfortunately can't say that I'm a millionaire on the side with my investments yet, but it's a very interesting time to be investing right now. Yeah. So uh, I have a talk on, on YouTube um, called my 14 income streams or something you could just you could just search johnny fd like income streams but basically the first half are the things that we just we had mentioned like the, the kindle books the udemy courses my dropshipping stores you know all the things that are at best semi-passive you know um things that yeah they, they make money while i'm sleeping or if i don't touch it for a few weeks they still make money but there are things that will eventually dwindle down or dry out if i don't pay attention to it with investing it's the only thing where i I think it was fidelity who did a study saying uh, and they found out that their customers that do the very best are the ones that either died or forgot they had an account and it really just shows that passive like investing really is the best form of passive income out there and you know that's why the rich get richer you know we can be upset about that you know we can you know um we can be we can not like (laughs) Uh, those who inherited money, you know, we can, you know, be mad at the millionaires, the billionaires out there. But the fact is, it all started with one generation where, you know, if we want to leave our kids a million dollars and make their lives much financially much easier, you know, 
it would have to start with us. And then as long as they didn't blow that money, they can literally just live off the, the interest from that. And then when it was time for them to pass that money down to their kids, now it would be worth $10 million. You know, and then the, ne- the, the next generation would have $50 million. And it really is the best form of passive income. And, it, and it's, it's one, one of those things that I think we should all make it a goal. You know? And the earlier we think about it, the, the younger we are when we start, the easier it is. I can't say I really got going even in my 20s. It was not to my early 30s. And I'm like kicking myself now. Like, wow, the power of reinvested dividends missed for, tw- for 10 years. Yeah, like if anyone really wants to blow their mind, uh, just search for compound interest calculator and sit down and just like plug plug numbers in. Just say like, okay, you know, if I start when I was, you know, at whatever age you are now, especially if you're young, you know, if you're like, let's say you're 22 and you're like, okay, what if I put 100 bucks a month in uh, every month for the rest of my life and it compounds at 7% growth, which is, you know, the average of the stock market. Just see what you'll end up having, you know, by the time you retire. And a lot of times you'll be shocked, you know, like, and you say, well, you know what, maybe if I put 300 bucks a month in, or, you know, what if I could put a thousand dollars a month in and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, like as long as I start early and I'm consistent and I put, you know, whatever it is, let's say $300 a month in, I can retire as a millionaire. That's insane. Like it's, it really is easier than, than people think it is. It just takes time and consistency. Yeah, I think it's the discipline and that it's like, you know, you want what you want right now. You want to impulsively shop on Amazon and that just gets in the way of so many people putting that money aside. It's sad. I mean, I, I remember say, like saying to someone, like, I, don't, I don't remember I said it once, but, you know, there's so many of these little $20 or $40 purchases that we make that we don't really think about. And we probably can't even think about it, like think of any just because they're so easy. But I guarantee if you go through your old credit card statements, you know, if you buy things on your on your card and just look for all the items under 40 bucks, you know, there will be so many things you'll you know, completely forgot about. And then add all that up and say, well, what if I had not bought these things? That I, did, I probably didn't really need anyways, you know, or I forgot, you know, f- you know, foregone these meals or these drinks or these nights out and I would have done something different. What if I took all this money and I add it up and then I've, you know, and I've been earning interest on it? Like how much would that be over the years? And it's an insane amount. Yeah, I think that's a great app idea. Just like the 20 to $40 range, everything you buy in that range, put it in and just see how much it is at the end of the year. And then the next year, invest that amount. Yeah, I mean... I remember every time I clean like my house, you know, um, and even now that I'm traveling, I don't have that much stuff, but you know, after a few months I'll go through it and there'll be a bunch of stuff that I bought that, you know, was all pretty cheap, right? It was all, you know, less than 40 bucks. And I'm like, why did I buy this? I never used it or I used it once or like, I didn't really need it, you know? And for me, it was a lot of it was clothing You know, I had way too many random t-shirts, you know, and even though they're only 15 or 20 bucks each, they add up, you know, and I have like random stuff for the kitchen, random things for, you know, here and there. And yeah, like we can all afford, you know, a $20 like thing for the kitchen or the $20, you know, piece of clothing. It's not expensive, but at the same time, if we really want to save and invest, the best way to do it is just to cut out those unnecessary purchases and make it a priority to start investing. Right. Maybe save the money first, put it into an account immediately every month so you can't touch it. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. If people were starting to invest in the stock market, I guess let's do it from an American perspective. What platform would you suggest that they get started with? Because I, I think people have this idea that it's super hard to sign up to a platform to get started buying stock. No, it's so easy. Like it's literally the easiest thing in the world. Um, and especially now, I, I remember, you know, even five years ago, the there would always be like a seven dollar, eight dollar fee, like every time you wanted to buy a stock. Now, and then I think it was Robinhood, an app that came out that was the first one to make everything free. And then all these other companies started making, you know, following suit. So you can literally, you know, use Fidelity, Shop, TD America Trade, like Vanguard, any of these companies, you know, and you can just start, you know, you can buy one, one stock, you can buy one share, you know, for, you know, 20 bucks or whatever it is and just have that. Um, I like for travelers, I really like Charles Schaub because with the brokerage account, you can get an ATM card that also refunds you ATM fees worldwide when you travel. And now that they don't charge, you know, $7 a trade, uh, I think they're the, the, the best option. Um, and from there, you can buy any kind of stock or any kind of fund. So even though I really like to invest in Vanguard funds because they have really low fees, it's really diversified. You can buy that same fund through Charles Schaub for also, you know, the same amount of, of money. So it's it become much, much easier. There's apps now you can do it on your phone. So Robinhood, you know, I'm sure, you, you know, you, like everybody has a, a link that says, like, if you refer a friend to Robinhood, you can get one free stock. So I have that somewhere on my blog. And, you know, I use Robinhood for kind of just fun things once in a while. I think I bought my Shopify stock through them. But... Yeah, there's so many options. And it actually doesn't matter as much anymore about where you buy it from, but it's more about having the knowledge of how stocks really work, what to do, you know, in a recession like we're in now. Uh, Should you buy individual stocks or should you buy a mutual fund or should you buy an index fund? These are things that I would recommend you learn through a book. You know, there's um, the book that I read that I really liked is Unshakable by Tony Robbins. It's a really, really good overview of the finance book. There's also another one called Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. But really just really read one of these books, really understand it before you start investing. Do you have a favorite safe investment that you would recommend? Yeah, so um, any kind of total stock market uh, index fund that has low fees, like a Vanguard VTI fund, is literally 3,500 of the U.S.'s like uh, biggest stocks. You know, biggest companies. The chances are, you know, if you if you invest in them and you don't sell it when it's down, like it's gonna just you know it's gonna recover. It's gonna slowly go back up. On average, seven percent, like it has for the last you know eighty years or hundred years. Um, and then if you really want to diversify, you can say, well, you know, I don't want to just be invested in the U.S. Maybe I also have thirty percent in the total uh, international uh, index fund. Uh, really, anything that is low fees and really well diversified is probably a safe bet. I mean, and the thing is, obviously, no one knows what's going to happen up and down. But there's there's a lot of ways to start investing. Uh, I would say the best way to do it is to make sure you have six months to a year's worth of emergency funds in a in a savings account, so you never have to sell when it's down. And then once you have that. You know, make sure you have all your debt paid off as well, and then say, okay, like let me just slowly buy these index funds every month. 
on the same date of the month, like the first of the month or the 15th of the month, no matter what, no matter if it's up or down and I'm just going to buy it and I'm never going to sell it until I retire and then you're done. Easy. That does sound very easy when you put it that way. So what is uh, Johnny FD up to next? I know right now things are so uncertain. I also know that you run your own conference, the Nomad Summit, and I did get your email that you have moved the upcoming Nomad Summit to August in Tbilisi, Georgia, if I've got that right. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that in four months from now that the world's going to let us travel again, that you know Georgia is going to allow um, – travelers again uh, but you know who knows what's going to happen and I think as digital nomads uh, two things is one is yeah we want to look forward to our next trip so already a lot of people thanked me saying like I'm really happy that you announced the dates so I can start making plans I can start dreaming about something and planning something for when this thing finally ends but the second you know people are flexible where they're like well you know if the world doesn't open back up by then it's okay I guess we can push it back again you know maybe till next summer or to the winter or something. And then, you know, we can continue to live where we are now. We can, you know, practice handstands at home. <laughs> we can work out at home and we can build our, our businesses. We can build our online store. We can get into, you know, whether it's drop shipping or writing a Kindle book or creating a Udemy course. There's so many things we can be doing right now. Where should somebody get started who's never done any kind of passive income? Let's say they just got laid off and they're just, they have some money that they can fall back on and they're just sitting at home. Where would you suggest that they start with all of this? I mean, it, like you said, it's almost become overwhelming, all the different things you can do. Yeah. I mean, so I always tell people to listen to my podcast, Travel Like a Boss, and just listen to a few interviews, you know, spend two weeks, listen to a bunch of different ones, and then ask yourself, is this something that you that resonates with you? If you're like, you know, let's say you listen to uh, Luis's interview and you're like, yeah, that actually sounds really cool. That sounds like something I would want to do. Choose something and just dedicate to that. I think the biggest mistake people make nowadays is not, you know, not knowing what to do. It's not knowing which one to choose and stick to. You know, it's really easy to you know, chase the next, uh, you know, shiny object or, Worse, you know, look for all the excuses or reasons why you shouldn't do it. You know, the truth is every business out there is hard. Every business takes a lot of work and everything has downsides. And if you start looking for all the downsides, you'll never get started with anything. You know, I think of it as as long as someone else has done it before me, you know, and they're not necessarily, you know, that much smarter or, you know, uh, they don't have some kind of secret, you know, uh, you know, thing that makes it so they can be successful and I can't. Like, if they can do it, why can't I? So I would just spend a few weeks, find something that you want, and then find find a way where you can kind of replicate their steps. So did they take a course to learn what they did? If so, what was that course? You know, did they read a book to learn what they're doing now? If so, what's that book? And just really follow that same footsteps. Thank you for that. Thank you. I, I have to ask just from what you've just said there about if, if they can do it, why can't I? Where did you get your confidence to be able to start writing the blog, especially something like starting a conference? Like where do you find this self-confidence? Because I think that stops a lot of people as well. I wish I had a good answer to that. Um, I mean, it, honestly, it took a long time. Uh, I, I think it's with, with experience and age and also just thinking – you know, it's really what, you know, had Tim Ferriss had said, like, what's the worst that could happen? And I remember when I first started Nomad Summit, 
nobody thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and it was also risky because I had to rent a conference room and I didn't know if anyone was going to show up. So it was, it was scary, you know, and, but I just told myself, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to rent a nice room. I'm going to rent the cheapest possible, you know, room we can find. And then, you know, to assure the, you know, that get enough people to come and like, I'm going to say like, just pay what you think it's worth, <laughs> you know, and just have it almost donation based the first year. And then the, by the next, you know, like after that ended, I was like, Oh, you know what? Like people like this, like, you know, people had a good time. Um, and we ended up breaking even and like now we have pictures and, you know, we have all these reviews of people that like the event next year. I, let's get the better room with the higher ceilings. Let's, you know, we know what it's worth. Let's start charging, you know, a normal price, you know, for, for the tickets. Uh, and I think that's how, that's how you build it up is really just to experience. You just have to, have to try it. You have to do it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Johnny, for taking the time to give us all this valuable advice in such an uncertain time. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's, it's been very fun. Thank you. And good luck with the Tbilisi conference. I hope it happens and I hope I see you there. Yeah, I hope I see you there as well. And if anyone wants to check it out, it's nomadsummit.com. If you guys want to follow me or see what I'm up to, just go to johnnyfd.com. All right. Thank you. A huge thanks again to Johnny for taking the time during quarantine in Sri Lanka to reach out to me in Tokyo and give such valuable advice on the power of creating multiple streams of income and investing both in yourself and the stock market as a way to set yourself up for the future and surround yourself with people that will inspire you to become a better you. I am so grateful that Johnny has made it a point in his life to inspire people to believe that they can have the life they really want if they set up a plan to do so and work towards it consistently. I think an important thing to remember is that no income stream that we make doesn't usually also come without a large time investment at the beginning and more time spent maintaining that income stream as time passes. It truly would be a dream to just wake up to more money in your bank account, but the truth is, if you do reach a point where this happens to you, it only happens by hard work, research, and a lot of time spent having the discipline to set it all up. That's what Johnny is so good at, and I hope you can set up multiple streams of income too, if that's what you want. There are so many ways to make this happen, but it's not going to come without a whole lot of work and the persistence to keep improving even after setbacks. I've put all the links to the books that Johnny mentioned, his two podcasts, Travel Like a Boss and Invest Like a Boss, The Nomad Summit, and his blog on our website, theschooloftravels.com. Go check them out, and I'm wishing you all a fantastic week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spend